Well, I am very excited to be here today. I can't believe that Pastor Jeff would pass up the opportunity to preach today, but for some reason he decided that he did. And this recently I've also had a speech class, which has really helped me learn how to present and speak publicly, and I've learned so much for that class. I was very grateful for being able to take that class. And also, this is I'm considering this my first real sermon. I know I've preached twice here before, but... I kind of was a little bit more limited. I had a book and chapter I was supposed to preach out of. I could preach out of whatever I wanted, but I was a little bit, you know, that's where I had to focus. This time, Pastor Jeff said, I get free reign of the whole Bible. So I was like, yes. And so I chose to preach out of the Old Testament because I kind of like it. And our reading comes out of the book of Malachi. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 654. And I invite you to take your Bibles, however you like to get it. And it's the last book in the Old Testament. We're going to begin reading in chapter 3. If you'd all please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I've entitled this sermon, God's Grace, Even When We Don't Deserve It. So our reading comes from Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Well, how about that? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit. Help me to teach the way that you need me to. Lord, help me to reach those that that this sermon needs to reach, Lord. And I ask that you just pour out your spirit, whatever it takes for me to get the message that you want to say across today, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, to be honest with you, I've gone to this church my whole life, but this is the first year that I've actually ever read all the books in the Bible. And I did them all actually twice. I don't recommend doing that. That is a lot of work and a lot of reading. But it was good for me, and I really enjoyed a lot of these stories because reading it after I got this call to ministry, it changed how I read it. And I started seeing all these little things like, oh, there's a way I can get a sermon out of Oh, there's another place I can get a sermon out of it. Was, it was really cool how that worked. But when you read the Bible, it's kind of interesting, and i got a question for you. How many people think that the Bible was wrote in chronological order? Let me see hands. Well, nobody. All right, how many people think that the Bible wasn't in chronological order? Okay, quite a few. Well, actually, it's kind of both. There are parts of the Bible that are chronological, and it begins way back in Genesis. And so from Genesis to about 2 Kings, it's pretty much in chronological order how it happened. And then you get into First and Second Chronicles, and it kind of encompasses parts from 1 Samuel through 2 Kings. So if chronological, it was actually in chronological order, it would look kind of like this. So, up until, like I said, up until 2 Kings, it's kind of chronological, and then Chronicles covers a whole span of time. But you also have all these prophets who are covering different parts of where these kings were, speaking prophetic words and kind of rebuking kings. And we're in Malachi, which is all the way over on the right. And this is kind of caps off the New Testament, and as if you study it, it kind of provides a really good ending to the Old Testament. But... First thing I need to do for this sermon is to cover some history. Because if you know your Old Testament history, you can kind of know what's going on and led up to this point. But if you don't, I'd like to cover it. So, 
It really begins with the calling of Abraham, and I want to cover the whole thing, but I don't have time to cover from you know the creation of Adam all the way to where we're at. And I'm going to skip parts, but it started with Abraham. But we're going to jump ahead, and we're going to be starting with the, the first king, or the ending of the time of what's called the Judges, and the first king, which is about 1050 B.C. And so the first king was named was Saul, and he was kind of an interesting guy. He started out as a really good king. You know, he was did all right for the first few years, but then he fell off. So God raised up a new king named David. And David was like the ideal king. I mean, everybody looked at him like everybody got compared to him. You know, everybody, are they, did they walk in the ways of David or did they not? So he was, he was like the man after God's own heart. And God really protected and was with Israel during this time. And he rose and he was a great leader. He had some faults. He did. But he was a really great king. And then his son Solomon kind of ushered in this golden era of of Jewish history. You know, they had this awesome time. They built this amazing temple. Like, if you read about it, I mean, it was paneled with cedar, overlaid with gold. All these precious stones were everywhere. I mean, this was like nothing had ever been built quite like this. It was so cool. If you ever get to see a picture of it, that's cool. I, I should have grabbed one, and i sorry I didn't do that, but I just thought of that. I should have put a picture so we could see what it looked like. But it's so cool how big it was. But what happened is, as Solomon ended up, he married or had a thousand women and who were influencing him, and most of them turned his heart from God. I don't know how that would happen, but it did. And they turned his heart, and he became, he was kind of, wasn't following God. He was following after all these foreign women's gods, these idols. He was offering sacrifices to them. But God was. God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. But because of David's sake, because he loved David so much, he said, I'm not going to take it all. I'm going to leave it. David's going to have somebody on the throne forever. And so Solomon doesn't get it taken away. And at the end of his life, he actually comes back to God as, as thought. But his son, actually the kingdom, gets split at that point. And this is about the year 931. And so when it splits, you have the northern kingdom, which is ten tribes, and you have the southern kingdom of two tribes of Israel. which is The northerns are called the Israelites, the southern parts are called Judah or Judea, whatever you like to use there. But the northern kingdom never had a good king. You know, if you read through the, the times of the kings and the chronicles, they never had a good one. They kept getting progressively worse and worse and worse and worse until they get to this, about the time when they get to this guy named Ahab. And someday I'll preach a sermon on him, but he is like the worst king ever. Like he's bottom of the barrel. You know, nobody, nobody wants to be like Ahab. And so they come and eventually the northern king gets conquered by Assyria. And this is, we get into the parts called the, A, Scott Daniels calls this the ABCs of what happened, how they got conquered. The A is for Assyria, and he comes in and he destroys the northern kingdom and carries them off into captivity, brings in other people and implants them into, into the northern part. And so now they have all these foreigners to the north. But the southern kingdom of Judea held on, and they held on for a couple hundred more years till about the year 605. And this is when the B comes in, as Babylon comes in and it conquers them, and it carries them off into exile. However, when you look at it, it was... It wasn't until the year 587 they actually consider this the collapse of Jerusalem because in the year 587, 86, somewhere in there, the temple was completely destroyed. And the whole, all of Jerusalem was destroyed and everybody else was carried off into captivity. I mean, there was a little bit still there. I mean, there's some peasant farmers and some people just enough to keep some of the land going. But it wasn't great. But then, then they entered into this time of exile. And exile was... It was about 70 years, from about 605 to about 537, 
but they're living in Babylon, you know, there's all the influences, you know, God tells them, you know, just live there for a while, you know, you're going to be there, build your homes, you know, keep going with your lives, because you're going to be there a while. But they bring them out in about the year 537, when here comes C, Cyrus of Persia comes in, and he releases the captives and tells them, you can all go home. So they go out and they're like, yay, and they're all going out, praise them, you know, we get psalms of praise out of this time. And when they get back to Jerusalem, they look around and they're like, oh. Because it's completely destroyed. I mean, everything. The walls are torn down. The temple's completely gone. So they're like, great. Now what do we do? So they have to rebuild everything pretty much from scratch. I mean, they got all the rubble. They got the parts there. But they got to put it all back together. So the first thing that they did was they built what the temple back up. So they laid the foundation. They got stalled out. Because their enemies don't want them to rebuild the temple. So they came in and they told them, hey, you know, you better not do this. We're going to tell on you, you know, to the king. You know, they were a bunch of tattletales. But they told them, and what happens is they stopped working. And God didn't like that. So he sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And they spur these people on, and then they go on, and they build this temple. And what happens is, is the temple's great, but it's nothing like the old one. And that's evident because you can see these people who saw the first one, as they're just, you know, they're crying, and they're wailing, like, oh, no, it's not as good as the first one. But these new people who hadn't seen it, they're all excited, and they're praising God, and you're like, yeah, woo! But... But you couldn't tell the difference between the crying and the mourning. So, you know, these people were excited. But God's presence had left the first temple when it got conquered. But it also returned to the second temple. And so, what happens is, after this time, Nehemiah comes in and he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Because they were completely destroyed down. They needed protection for the enemies. And he repopulated the city. And then this brings us into about where we are in about the year 430. So the people had been back. Temple worship had been restored. And everybody is kind of going on with their life. But it's not really gotten gotten a lot better. They're not seeing the Messiah that they were promised. They're kind of like, Where where's the Messiah? You know, he's supposed to be here. You know, God promised him. He's coming. Not yet, but he's coming. And they just kind of fall out. You know, they fall off. And this is where we are. And in comes this guy named Malachi, which literally means my messenger. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to whether Malachi was actually the name of the prophet or whether this could have been like a pseudoname for, you know, somebody else. They think it could have been Ezra, possibly, but they don't really know. I mean, they're debating, but they said there's no reason to doubt that the guy's name was actually Malachi because that's how all the other books are, is they're named after the prophet that spoke them. And so, you have this Malachi, and he comes in, and he says, basically... You're all, you know why God's not blessing you? Well, you're sinning. And he says, here are the problems. The first one, they're a chosen people. God chose them from Abraham and he created them down and has preserved them and protected them through the seed. And they're chosen, but guess what happened? What did that do? There we go. Wrong button. Okay, but they chose not to serve God. And it's evident as you read through the whole Bible, you see there's times where they're serving God. And it's really evident in like the judges and then through the, some of the kings as well have, you know, they'll, they'll serve God and then, you know, this, then they don't serve God and this judge comes in and has to deliver him because they've just been oppressed by an enemy. And so this judge comes in, he rescues them, there's a great time, they rise back up, you know, it's like the roller coaster of Israelite history. They go up and down. But God comes in and he rescues them through these judges for a while. And then they come in later and they have kings. And like I said, the northern kingdom has all good kings, or it has, excuse me, the northern kingdom has all bad kings. 
the southern kingdom has some good and some bad. So they'll have a, like two bad kings and a really good king, and then two bad kings and a pretty good king, and two bad kings and a really good king. You know, so it's, it's this cycle. But they're they're serving God and then they're not serving God. But what happens is when they don't serve God, they get oppressed. They get you know they get you know the enemies come in, they destroy them, they take them captive. And so they were living in that kind of sin. They weren't following him. They would follow the other gods. They were offering sacrifices to other idols. It was not good. You know what else they did? Is they got really lazy in worship. If you read the first few books of the Bible, like the second half of Exodus and Leviticus, you'll see all these rituals of how they're supposed to offer these sacrifices. And, and the priests were supposed to do this. They had a specific way. You know, you have to kill this type of animal for this, this type of animal this way. And so they kept going and they had all these lists. It's very specific. You know, God says you have to do it this way. But they weren't started not doing it. You know what was the worst part? Is when they started, they were supposed to offer like the best of the best, the firstborn, you know, the the pride and joy of their their stock. They were offering that to God. When you come into this point, it's no longer like that. They're offering the blind as sacrifices, the lame as sacrifices. This is what it says if you read in the books of Malachi in the first couple of chapters, it's talking about this, is these priests they started they already started offering these sacrifices and they just weren't good. God's like, These aren't these aren't what I asked for. This is not pleasing to me. And so, he's like, would you really offer this? He literally says, would you offer this to your governor, to your rulers? I mean, would you give anything less than your best to them? Why would you give that to me? And it's just really, this would be upsetting to God. You can obviously see why. But the next thing they were doing is they were marrying women outside of their faith. They're marrying these women who are not Israelites. They're from all these ites, you know, the Jebusites, the Hittites. All of them were parasites. But they all come in and they start marrying in with these women. And they turn their hearts from God, but during the time of Ezra, he comes in and he says, okay, you all got to turn back. And they end up divorcing all these women, which was another one of these issues that Malachi brought up. He said, he said, God doesn't like any kinds of divorce. So I know if there ever was an example of good divorce, I guess this would be it. But he says, you're divorcing these women, and I don't, you know, no divorce is good in God's sight. But it happens. So what else did they do? They weren't paying their tithe. And then if you read in the first and also in Leviticus, it talks about paying the tithe. You have to give your first 10% to God. So, you know, the best parts of your field, everything goes to God. And they weren't doing it. They are supposed to bring all their food into these storehouses. And the storehouses were used to give to the priests. They were also used to give to the poor and those people who didn't have. And they weren't doing that. And then they said it was useless to serve God because nothing was happening the way they said it. I mean, it's, this is what verse 15 says. It says, And now... We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And they're like, we don't get it. Why is God not blessing us? I mean, he said he would. You know, he said he was loving us. He said he was caring for us. He said he was protecting us. But he's not doing it. And they just, they didn't get it. You know, they didn't understand. They couldn't see. Maybe because they don't have the big picture like we do. But they still didn't understand it. And so, what do we, what can we learn from this? You know, what, I don't know what you can learn, but I'm going to tell you what I learned from this. And we'll see if you learn the same thing. But if you look at it, all these sins that they committed is where each of us are the same as the Israelites. Each of us is chosen by God. God wants to call each and every one of us. He loves each and every one of us. He protects each and every one of us, even in ways we don't see. But, I mean, we're not the actual Jews. But, I mean, we're living in this time where I can see, I'll be honest, I can see a lot of these sins still going on. People are marrying women that are outside the faith, you know, and it's, it makes it hard. They turn their hearts from God. They're not following God the way they should be. They're also, all these people, you see a lot of evil people that get into higher positions, but 
you know, they're not who we're supposed to follow. You know, we're supposed to follow God. And then we see, oh, they're doing, you know, they're getting away with all this, but we're not. You know, we're not getting blessed by God. How come we don't see this growth that, you know, God's supposed to be promising us? How come we don't see God, you know, coming back and just setting everything right? Because the time's not right. See, what happened after this time is there was about 400 years of silence. It wasn't silent, but there was no prophetic word. There's no real biblical books that come out of after this time. And if you ever get to read about the intertestamental period, that's fascinating stuff that happens and how it sets up the world for how when Jesus came with Alexander the Great comes in and basically everybody's pretty much speaking the same language. But he comes in and he kind of conquers the whole world by the time he's 33. If you ever take Western history, you learn about this. And he comes in and he kind of sets this. And so Jesus comes in, everybody's kind of speaking the same language. But everything had fallen off. The temple had get conquered again. Everything had been destroyed. But they had got, the Romans came in and built them a new temple. But God didn't return. God's presence never came back in the way that it had before. And so now they're really, you know, what do we do? What we celebrated last week was the actual physical presence of God coming into the world. And this was the new presence of God. And this is what we get to experience. We don't have to go through all the sacrifices and the rituals that they did, which I'm kind of glad, but we don't have to do that. We have, we got to see what Jesus said, and we get to follow after him because we know from all this that God, how much God loves us and his grace and his truth and his mercy are with us, and we get to experience all of this. The Israelites didn't see that, and this is why I think a lot of pastors like to preach out of the New Testament and the Old, because you gotta dig a little bit more in the Old to pull out this God's grace and love. It looks like a lot of judging. Because they're getting oppressed. But what happens is they're not following God. But God's still protecting them. He still carries out the remnant. Everybody's still there. And so God just continues to bless Israel. And he does it through Jesus. So now we get to experience this. We get to, like the song said, we get to be called children of God if we ask him to. But here's the good news that I liked. And it comes right out of continuing from in our reading after chapter, after verse 15. Starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who is his son who serves them. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Then we start chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, so you shall go out like leaping, like leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for, is, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with an utter decree of destruction. That's good news, I think. Because God comes in and he will remember those who are faithful. He brings justice in the end. He will, when he comes again, he knows who is faithful. He knows who followed him. And he will bring this justice back to us. And he, he just offers, I just love this because he offers grace throughout all of Israel's history. Every time they become, they sin and they fall off and they get oppressed. 
He's still there and he's still, you know, when they cry out to him, he still saves them. He brings, sends somebody to get them. And that's who this Elijah is. And we don't have time to get into it, but I'd love to. Because Elijah is so cool. But Elijah is the prophet. And remember I said Ahab was like the bottom of the barrel king. Elijah was the prophet who spoke in the time of Ahab. He was the only one who was speaking truth to the kings. He was the one who was calling out all the sins and saying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. He is their most, their greatest prophet. All of the Israelites say he is the greatest. I'm assuming it's because he was in this time. Because if you read it, the one who followed him, Elisha, had a double portion of his spirit. But it must have been better times because they just look at Elijah as this great prophet. And Elijah was. He was an awesome prophet. But to me, I would think Elisha because he's got double. But anyway, but he just offers his grace every time. And even he even offered it to Ahab, if you read this story of Ahab. Because towards the end of his life, God, he, you know, Elijah comes and tells him what's going to happen. And Ahab actually repents, has a turning to God. And God doesn't carry it out in Ahab's lifetime. Ahab never has to see the destruction that he brought in his own house. And for all we know, Ahab could be in heaven because he turned at that point to God. And got carried out on his son, so God's judgment did happen, and he brought the justice that was due. And this will happen. And all of us have the opportunity to experience this life with God, this grace that he offers every day. And... He remembers those. In the Church of the Nazarene, we have a couple different things. One of them is called salvation or justification. That's when you, you ask God to come in and you, you save, ask Him to save you from your sins. And we have another thing which is called sanctification. That's where you live fully surrendered to God, when you get filled with His Holy Spirit, because you want nothing but to serve God. And the way I like to look at it is yet that's when you put God at the center of who you are. Because like with the old potbelly stoves, you had to put them in the center of the house and they'd heat up the whole thing. You put them in a corner, they would get cold. If you put God at the center of your life, he will radiate out into everything you have. And he affects how you view people. He affects how you view money. He affects how you view time. He affects what you watch on TV. He affects how you drive down the road sometimes. I mean, he just he'll affect everything you have, but it won't be... Worse. Nothing gets worse serving God. I can promise you that. Everything gets better. It might be hard, but it's better because you have a hope and a joy that God will bring salvation or will bring justice in the end. And I just want, I asked Debbie to play one of my favorite hymns. It's called All to Jesus I Surrender. I just wonder if anybody would like to start off this new year completely surrendered to God saying, God, I just love you to come fill my life, you know. I just love you to just be a part of me. You know, I want to put you at the center because I want you to affect everything I have. And maybe you're like me, and sometimes I would surrender everything to God, but then I'd take just a little bit back, and, you know, I'd want to control it. But I have to keep surrendering that thing back to God because I would keep taking back control of it. So maybe you're like me, and you need to surrender something back to God that you've taken back. And we have that opportunity today. And I just want, the altars are open. If anybody would like to come and pray, I would like you to come and pray. Asking God, you know, surrender everything to him. Say, God, come and fill me with your spirit. The altars are open. If God's speaking to you, would you please come? Lord, I just thank you for this this opportunity that you've given me to speak, Lord. I thank you for being with me today and giving me, hopefully, the right words to say. I thank you for for being with us this past year, Lord, and as we looked Look forward to our next year, Lord. Help us to live fully surrendered to you. Help us to live in the power of your spirit. 
help us to light a fire like Phineas Brzee prayed for one of his churches. Just light a holy fire here that burns up to to heaven, Lord, and just help us to develop, be known as people who live by the Spirit, who live fully surrendered to God, who just love people who like to share God's grace and His truth and His mercy with others and just tell Him about, about You, Lord. Just help us to be that way through this next year, Lord. Help us to grow as a church, grow closer to You while growing closer together. And I just thank You for our church, Lord. Just help us and be with us this next year. Bless us. And bless all the people here, Lord. Help them throughout this next year as they go. Help them to to see ways where they can serve You, Lord. And I just thank You for for every opportunity we get together, Lord, because we never know when our last one will be. And I just thank You for that, Lord. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, may you go in this whole week, or this whole next year, rather, will you be blessed, living fully surrendered to God, putting Him at the center of who you are so that you can radiate His love to everybody around you. Go in His peace.